his ways. Okay. All right. Well, now, as we're looking here, really just the last few days of 2021, I don't have to tell you that. You already know that. And looking into the new year, I didn't want to jump right into Matthew. We'll do that in two weeks. I'm going to do a part one today of a two-parter, and that's just because of the length of information I want to share with you. I, I do want to start our morning today, or start the new year, even though we're still in December, thinking about the new year. We've celebrated Christmas, and it's not like Christmas is out of our minds. Look at the sanctuary. You can tell that. I'm sure in your heart you're still excited about all the things that you got yesterday, uh, and hopefully you did. Hopefully you didn't get a bag of rocks or anything or a chunk of coal like that. If you did, we probably need to talk afterwards. <laughs> we can get some counseling and We'll go through all the things that will help you get better gifts next year. Um, but So you're probably thinking about all that, but I know you're transitioning your life, your minds rather, into what the new year is going to bring. Um, we often are people who are anxious to get rid of the bad stuff and think about what may be coming down the road that's good, and, and certainly we want to think about all of that. And so uh, I'm, a, I'm aware that you're ready to do that. For many of you, uh, 2021 was better than 2020 but maybe not a lot, um, in some ways maybe worse, and you're really looking forward to 2022. As I thought through all of those things, I realized that there are those of you, in fact, somebody came up to me after the service and said, yeah, I'm really seeing this in my family, this being the aging process. A lot of you are feeling the effects of that more and more and more, especially at the time of the holidays. This one person was saying that they got together with family, but the people who were once around the table with us have gone on to be with the Lord or are passed on from this life, and so there was an emptiness there, and they just realized the changes with life that come in that way. Uh, there's some of you who have, this last year, been through some great family struggles, uh, and maybe there are people that were absent from your Christmas table because you're not able to really see eye to eye on life and get along with one another. Let's just be honest, right? Uh, that does happen. Sometimes holidays can be very stressful. And uh, maybe it was COVID-related, maybe not, maybe something else, but you've experienced that this year with family relationships. Some of you have had to deal with work-related situations and the pressures that have come with living life on Zoom, right, and dealing with living life at home in your office with no other people to deal with on a regular basis. And so that's been greatly challenging for you. Some of you have faced very difficult health issues, not just the aging process, but some have found out things about their life, their body that they didn't like, and uh, just because of, of things in a sinful world and all the uncertainty that comes with that. But I think above all things, and this is kind of what's been in my mind as I was preparing this, you probably struggled more with seeing our world move more and more in an ungodly spiral down, downhill. And I would even say probably not only the foolishness of how the world is operating and thinking in these days, really unprecedented that I can remember in my life, in my short life. Some of you may have different feelings about that in, in your life, but uh, just the growing amount of apparent evil that uh, seems to be so common today. Again, maybe we're just more aware of it because of social media and all the things that we have at our fingertips now. Uh, but there is at least... If nothing else, and I think you would agree with me on this, this growing awareness of just an unholiness in the world. Now, I don't want to be a downer. That's not my point here. My point is to be a realist and to be honest and open about the world that we live in, uh, the culture, the times that we live in, and facing them head on in a healthy spiritual way so that we know how to get through the difficulties, and God has a plan for us to do that. But if we pay attention to just the negativity and we don't have good instruction from the Lord what to, on what to focus on and what to pay attention to, we can become victims of the ungodliness of the world, so much so that we'll either stop being the person that God wants us to be or we'll recoil from life altogether and become a hermit and live up on the side of a mountain in some way. Although that may be very encouraging to some of you as a uh, people are hard to live with, um, that's not the life God has called us to. Again, I, I think I've shared this with you before, but i never forget the time we went to Mexico. Harry, you'll remember this. We went to see one of the missionaries there, and we flew into El Paso with our youth group. And those of you who were on that trip will remember this. Uh, we were picked up in El Paso by the missionary, and we drove another 
eight hours or something like that. It was a long ways down into Mexico. And it was just tumbleweed after tumbleweed. And, and, and it was beautiful scenery. But I remember looking over at the missionary and saying, why are you here? And he looked at me with a really strange look as if I'd lost my mind and said, well, this is where the people are. And so it really stuck in me what he was saying is that we have surrendered our lives to be in a kind of a nowhere place because there are people here. And that's really the heart of a true believer is to say, I may want this, but what really needs to happen is I need to sacrifice myself to be what God wants me to be and to be where God wants me to be, wherever that culture might be. Now, as much as I'm saying all these things, and it sounds very negative, I don't really want to be that way, but I need to say these things in order to prep our minds for what we want to hear this morning from Paul's letter to Timothy. And so I'm going to be looking at that this morning and next week, specifically hearing what Paul is addressing in the culture that Timothy is to pay attention to, now get this part, so that Timothy will have a way to live his life effectively in the midst of that culture. Are you following what I'm saying? Okay. And we'll elaborate on that as we go through. That's my heart. It's always my heart for you as your pastors that we hear the truth of God's word. We align it with the culture as much as we can in in the sense of what we're seeing so that you and I know how to live a very healthy spiritual life uh, without giving up and without falling away in the way that so many people do. And again, we'll talk about that more as we get into this. So let's stand now and read our text from 2 Timothy chapter 3. And uh, you may see more on the screen. I've changed this this morning. I just want to cover verses 1 through 5. Okay, 2 Timothy 3, verses 1 through 5. Paul writes, Realize this, that in the last days difficult times will come, for men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips, without self-control, brutal, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, holding to a form of godliness, although they have denied its power. All right, amen. You may be seated. I know you're probably thinking, what a deflation from yesterday. We had such a wonderful time celebrating Christmas and how deflating this is. Well, I hope it's not uh, because it is the word of the Lord. And again, God has our best interest at heart, which is why he's sharing the things that he is. Now, in order to understand the text, and by the way, I've titled the message, How to Live Godly in an Ungodly Culture. And this is part one, How to Live Godly in an ungodly culture. In order to understand what Paul is saying to Timothy here, because we've just taken one piece out of the letter, let me go back and give you the background just very, very briefly of what's happened. This letter, 2 Timothy, is the second, and many of you will know this, of two inspired letters, inspired by the Spirit of God, to the Apostle Paul, who would write to this young man named Timothy. Okay, Timothy was a young man who grew up in what we would now know as modern-day Turkey. It was then called Lystra. Uh, He grew up under a godly mother. He grew up under a godly grandmother who taught him the ways of God and the truth of God according to the scriptures as they had them at that particular point. Well, in God's divine providence, he would have the Apostle Paul visit uh, this place, Lystra, on his first missionary journey. And it's then that we learn that he met this young man, Timothy, who again was probably... Uh, in his teens maybe, maybe in his er early 20s, and uh, and became acquainted with him. Uh, Later, Paul would go back on a second missionary journey, and we see all this in the book of Acts, specifically in Acts 16, and he would choose Timothy to be a companion of his own, excuse me, a a companion of his own, and Timothy would become really one of the greatest of companions to the apostle Paul throughout the balance of his ministry. But as the world goes, and you know this, uh, the world is full of sin and loves its sin. And and because of all that, historically we know that uh, the righteous life of the Christian is often pushed against and even hated 
by the world. Uh, there's a lot of reasons for that, but that was just the truth. And in Paul's day, in Timothy's day, there was a growing persecution among Christians. And we're not talking about just uh, verbal barrages, that was part of it, but we're talking about literally taking the life of people, which caused Paul in his first time of writing, which would be the first letter to Timothy, to be put under house arrest. Now, house arrest was just what it sounds like. He was under Roman guard, but he was free to live in the house and to write and to have his parchments, his papers, his scriptures, to visit with people as they could come and go. Uh, and so there was a sense of freedom all about that. Uh, and so he wrote his first letter to Timothy. Now, this second letter, though, would find Paul in a second imprisonment, this time a very different setting, which would be a dark, cold, uh, lifeless place where he was isolated from the rest of the world. And knowing that he was uh, under the threat of his own uh, martyrdom, he knew that he was going to die. This was not going to be a place that he was going to come out of. And so like any faithful mentor or faithful pastor or faithful servant would do, he writes to young Timothy the second letter to give to him some brief instructions on how to face the culture that he's going into, how to not back up from it, but to live a healthy life and even to help others grow in their understanding of what it means to be a true believer when the culture is screaming around him, this is not the way, go this way. And so Paul, loving Timothy that much, writes this letter of 2 Timothy, and this is partly what he says to him. Now, the purpose of the letter really is to do all that I said for Timothy, but also because of, as you've already imagined, you've already heard me say of what we're seeing in our own culture today. And I thought it would be good for us to listen to his instructions so we also can know how to live our lives. Now, we'll, we'll look at the rest of them later, as I said. So let's point out the very first thing, and this is really all I want to hinge on this morning, just very briefly. It comes right from the very first verse in chapter 3, and that is, accept the fact that things are going to get worse, Timothy. You can almost hear this conversation, even though Paul's writing the words physically, he is telling Timothy, Timothy, you need to understand it's not going to get better. Notice verse 1. He says, realize this. Now, you're smart enough to understand what he means, but just to be clear, Paul is saying that using this word realize, or the Greek word would mean to acknowledge. There needs to be an acknowledgement. Timothy, you need to acknowledge the fact, you need to know, you need to understand, you need to take it into your heart, the reality that there is not going to be good that's going to eventually bring forth from all that's happening in the world. There will be pockets of times, and we'll talk about that in a minute, that will be good, and there will be levels of things and errors of things that will be good in its own way, but in a general way, it's not going to turn out well. Notice he says in verse 1, and this is where we get that understanding, difficult times will come. The word difficult here is interesting. It's not just... What we would think of, oh, yesterday was so difficult. Uh, that may be very real for you, whatever your situation may have been. But what he really means here is a word that is used to talk about something violent. This is a greatly intense word, meaning hard to bear, even savage in nature, if you just picture that word in its own way. It's the same word that Matthew uses to describe the casting out of the two demoniacs, uh, the demons out of the two demoniacs in Matthew chapter 8 when he says they were so extremely violent. There's the word. Same word in Greek used there for the word difficult here. They were so extremely violent that no one could pass by that way. And if you can imagine that scene as we studied that in our study in Matthew what a tragic situation that must have been where people were so terrified to be around these two men that they wouldn't even go close to them. Well, the reality is Paul is saying that there are going to come such difficult times you will think of them as being like those two demoniacs, savage in nature, hard, violent, difficult times. Now, as I mentioned a second ago, the word times here in verse 1 is not 
just a time on a calendar. It's not the clock itself. It's not the minutes and seconds that we might think of with times, but he's talking about seasons. There are going to be seasons of time in the future, Timothy, that are going to be greatly, greatly challenging. So, Timothy, really need to understand what Paul's saying here is you need to understand, you need to accept what I'm saying here, that there are going to be dangerous times that are going to increase in severity and frequency as Christ's time of his, recur- his second return gets closer. Now, after making that statement, I think the Holy Spirit understands. I don't know if Paul necessarily understood this, but you know how the Spirit works in the, in the minds of people and helps give insight. Well, we have the benefit of the insight of what the Spirit wanted Timothy to know given to us. And I think that's why Paul gives us this list. He gives us this very clear list, which is good because we need to know particularly what to look for. And I'm saying that because you and I often feel the weight of the culture. We feel the weight of life on us from all the things that I've already mentioned. But often we will just use general statements in in trying to describe what we're feeling. We'll say, oh, that was hard, or I don't understand why it has to be this way, or we're trying to express to someone what the situation or the conversation or the, the moment with the person we're struggling with is all about. Well, God gives to us a very clear picture of what we are to pay attention to. And the first one he says here, after describing the difficulty of it is, look in verse 2, he says, men will be lovers of self. Men will be lovers of self. Now I'm going to spend the bulk of our time this morning on this one because it's from this one that all the others are built. In other words, this lover of self is the foundation of all the other things that Paul mentioned in our list this morning. Now, It's also important to understand when Paul talks about men, he's really not just, he is, but he's not just talking about men in general. He's also, to Timothy, talking about the church. He's saying men will come in to the church who will be pastors and teachers and various other spiritual leaders who know the truth about God's word but deny its power. This is something that you need to watch out for, Timothy. Men will come and they will rip to shreds. They will be savage in the way they deal with the church, mainly not because of their demeanor or the actions that they promote, but because of how they mistreat the word of the Lord. They will rip the word of the Lord to shreds, not because they understand it, but because of the opposite because they don't understand it and they don't believe it to truly be the word of the Lord. Now, the reason that's important is because you and I are part of the church. You remember Paul would also say that I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in, not sparing the flock. Paul knew as much as he loved the church that even after his time was done on earth, that the very churches that he was serving were going to be infiltrated by ungodliness, even from the leadership. You've probably been a part of churches like that. There were times in the life of this very church where there were questions about that. Were the leaders, was the the main leader the one who needed to be the one in place? Well, Paul says many people unsuspectingly who are not paying attention will follow them. And that comes to comes very clear to us, doesn't it? I mean, how many people have been drawn away by ungodly men who profess to be believers in the truth, who profess to be teachers of the word, but really are not people who really even, when it comes down to it, believe in the God that they say that they're promoting. And many unsuspecting people, people who come in with good intentions, will be led away and have been led away even following a different God from the God of the Bible, all thinking that they're following Christianity. Well, Paul says they will be that way because they are lovers of themselves. They are lovers of themselves. They will, have, they will be people who have a great affection for themselves. Now, you might be thinking, well, you know, what's wrong with loving yourself? 
Well, there's nothing wrong with loving yourself. There's a sense in which there's, that's right. We, we should love ourselves in the sense that we are God's children. Uh, we are his creation. We are filled with his spirit. And so we are to be encouraged about how God made us and who he made us to be and to be confident in ourselves only because we are confident in the God who has made us. But that's not what Paul's talking about here. He's talking about people who are misguided in their love for self to the point where it causes them great harm, where they're so in love with themselves that they're, they can't think about anything else in an equal way. Nobody else is looked at favorably, and that begins the list that Paul talks about here. But let me just help you with this a little bit and see how crazy this self-love turns out. Now, you can do a lot of searching online today, uh, and I'm talking about in these days, and find all kinds of things about what love is. You remember the little Snoopy thing that says love is this? Well, people have taken that and they've just exploded that thought, that phrase, not necessarily from Snoopy or Charles Schultz, but taking that phrase to mean here's what love is, and they define what love is for themselves basically saying, this is what I want love to be because this is what makes me feel the best. Well, one of the things that people have done, and you may have heard of this, and I hope I'm pronouncing this right, but have you ever heard of the word soligamy? S-O-L-O-G-A-M-Y. It's a real thing. It's the practice of people marrying themselves because they love themselves so much. It's true. I have an article here from the United Kingdom. It's from www.imarriedme.co.uk. And the title is A Guide to Soligamy. Now, as you read through this, you realize that there are some good things about it. They say this is not about narcissism, although that's hard to imagine. Um, It's a rite of passage, and that is kind of promoted as a positive way. It celebrates singleness, which there is certainly nothing wrong with singleness. Singleness, according to even the Apostle Paul, is a great gift of God. Um, It doesn't mean you're rejecting other meaningful relationships. It combats loneliness. Uh, But this is interesting. A woman marrying herself is a feminist statement, and they talk about that being positive. It says women get to get the brunt of the stigma surrounding being single. Bachelors are eligible, but spinsters are crazy old cat ladies. And so they're promoting this marrying of self in a way that keeps that from being the case. Um, Self-marriage won't always be roses. They say, you know, when you're married to yourself, there's going to be some tough times in the relationship. I mean, you know, you're going to wake up some mornings, you're going to say, why did you say that? I can't believe you think that way. I don't know. I'm making up something here. But um, divorce isn't an option. Okay. And this is serious now. I mean, we're laughing, but this is serious. As discussed, there will be times when you neglect yourself and don't keep your promises. This doesn't mean you give up. Once you've married yourself, there's no option of divorce because that would mean you can no longer live with yourself, which is basically suicide. How about that? Soligamy is not a criticism of happy couples and married people. So in other words, we're not talking about marriage shouldn't be real, uh, but basically you won't regret it. And this is a real thing. Now, it's not, I couldn't find where it's actually legalized yet, but that's probably coming. And so I just wanted you to realize and see that there really is this concept or legitimate belief that a person conjures up that I am number one. Boy, that sounds familiar, doesn't it? Where do you think that came from? Does it sound very familiar to what Adam and Eve experienced in the garden? Hey, Eve, God knows that if you do this, you will be like him. What was he really saying? You won't need God anymore. You can be God. You can put yourself on the throne. Very similar to that, doesn't it? Well, that's because it's always the same lie that's perpetuated. Now, to me, this polygamy thing is not only weird, but when a person loves self more than God, what happens to God? Well, God is brought down, right? God is not 
on the throne like he should be. And what I mean by that is when a person really loves themselves, it creates division between the soul of the person and God, the one who created them and the one that we are in such desperate need of, which when there is division between any two relationships, there's often havoc that comes from that division, right? Right? You've experienced relationships before that have had brokenness to them. You know what it's like to have a a time where you're not getting along with somebody else, and that's because usually you believe you're right, whatever the subject might be, and therefore if you're right, then how could the other person also be right? Well, that won't work. So I've got to be more correct. And so it creates a real sense of havoc. And when the self is adored, more than God, then everything becomes about you instead of the God who created you, which is everything the Bible speaks about and how he wants us to be. When all of that happens, then God's truth is turned into something evil instead of the source of all that is good and right. In other words, when I believe that I am the one who is in total control over my life because I love myself so much, then God's book becomes a book of suggestions to help me be better on my own throne instead of God being the one who adjusts me and corrects me because he's really God, which is the right way to think. I now become the one who just looks to God as the one who can help me to be the one that I want to be. And sadly, many Christians, or at least people who profess to be Christians, lean on the love of themselves to begin to even justify their own sins. And what I mean by that is, is that if God is more concerned about how a person feels, which is what sin wants to tell us, God is more concerned about how you feel about yourself than he is about your sinful condition, then I don't really need him. He becomes something that I can manipulate. And unfortunately, that's the contemporary church in a lot of ways. You come in and the God that we're promoting can be the God that you want him to be. Now, they may not say that, but that's the message that they'll promote. God is love. And that's certainly true, right? And this God of love just wants you to be a happy person. So go live however you want to live the way that will make you the most happy. Boy, who wouldn't want a God like that? I mean, after all, there's not one of us that doesn't want to be happy, right? But the truth is, beloved, God is not a God who just wants to make us happy. God wants to give us joy. There's a big difference. Happiness is a fleeting emotion. It comes and it goes. But joy is eternal. It stays deep within us. And so you and I can go through the roller coasters of life, the ups and the downs, not always being happy, but trusting in the God who gives us joy in the midst of the difficulties. Now, that could be a sermon in itself. The contemporary church, in a lot of ways, though, and I'm not picking on anybody. When I'm saying contemporary, I'm talking about the groups that I'm mentioning specifically here, those who pick and choose the word of the Lord to fit what they want it to fit. That's why people can come and live in their sinful condition without any recourse, without having to feel any conviction or any sense of repentance. Because after all, if I'm to love myself, then again, God becomes something to just help me do that. But the truth is, the Bible truth is, is that God says if you don't see and acknowledge your total depravity, your inability to be anything without him, you will never turn to him for anything. Why would you? But the reality is, is if you don't turn to him, you will never see his eternal kingdom. Because it is only through him that we are able to enter into the kingdom. How many times have we had conversations over the years, and I'm just talking about my family, but just all of us in our talks with other people who are not believers about what it really takes to get into the eternal kingdom. You ask them, how do you get to the kingdom? And they'll say, oh, well, I gotta be a good person. You see, they're measuring their life off of what they've built. They have a scale according to how they think things ought to go, and God will accept me because how could a good, loving God reject me if I'm being basically a good person? But that's not what the Bible teaches. That's good. It's right. 
But the Bible teaches us that we need to see ourselves as needing to trust him for everything. Okay? But when we don't do that, then God is replaced, and I think you understand that. And let me read you something that a, a commentator wrote some years ago about this particular subject, and he said, The roots of the modern infatuation with self-love can be traced to the humanism of the 19th century, especially in the development of evolutionism. And there's a whole subject that we could talk about with that. If you follow history, you know that to be true. There was this great promotion of the self throughout these, these topics. If man is seen as the product of impersonal chance, which is what many people believe, God is ruled out making the evaluation of self perfectly acceptable. Because there is no basis for right and wrong, the individual's natural bent to self-centeredness is reinforced and he finds consummate justification for being his own God who does his own will. Each man is captain of his own ship and master of his own fate and cannot allow his self-will to be hindered or he does harm to his well-being. Again, as I said, that was written some time ago. But when you look at everything around us and the belief system of if everything centers on me and how I feel about myself, then the reality from what the writer says here is just. Why do I need God for anything? I can be my own God. That's exactly what's crept into the church, and that's what I've been saying all along, where the needs of the self are put higher than God. And I wish we had time to go through all the various means of how that happens. We do that a lot, beloved. And I'm not going to try to define that any more than that. I want to ask you to pray about how God wants to show you or what God may want to show you in your own life about how you have put yourself higher than how God should be in your life. That's a good prayer. In fact, why don't we stop right now and let's just pray about that. Let's just, even where you are right now, even online, let's just pray that God would begin to reveal to us how we have loved ourselves more than we have loved him. Heavenly Father, we just pause for a second here to just stop on this topic and ask that in these days that are ahead that you would point out the areas that we have put ourselves on the throne of love above you. Lord, make it clear, we pray in Jesus' name. So I think you begin to understand. Now, the bottom line simply being it's natural, it's, it's sinful for us to do that, to elevate ourselves, and we do that because we really just want to make ourselves feel better. If I'm the captain, then I can do whatever I want, right? Hey, I'm the boss, and the boss does what he wants. And if I'm the boss, then I'll do whatever I want to do and be however I want to be. But let's contrast that with some other places that God talks differently. In fact, the Apostle Paul would say to the church in Philippi, chapter 2, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit. That's enough in itself, isn't it? That's pretty clear. But with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Boy, doesn't that just smack a wet, dirty dish rag right against your face? And just wake you up and say, oh my goodness, this is what God wants me to think of myself? Yes. Verse 4, and he's going to tell us why. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. In other words, it's not wrong to look out for yourself. That's good. But make the priority the interest of others or the best of others. And here's why. Verse 5, have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. Well, who is he? Well, he existed in the form of God, verse 6, because he was God. He did not regard, regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, that's that under rower in the galley of a Roman ship, and being made in the likeness of men, being found in the appearance of man because he was fully man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient even to the point of death, even death on a cross. That's the marker of the true believer. The one who identifies the love of self and says, that's not what God wants me to be like. I'm not the one I'm so supposed to focus on, but I focus on what he wants. All right, well, let's keep going here because Paul is going to explain this very foundation and how it stacks up in other ways. So watch this. 
Paul says now, people will be lovers of money, they will be boastful, and they will be arrogant. And that makes sense when a person loves themselves more than God, right? Because pride comes in, and instead of giving, they take. They want money, they want power, they want arrogance, because life is all about me. Basically saying, all I need is money, I need to make sure that I am elevated so everybody recognizes me. I need to be on the top of the pillar of success because that's where I find my happiness, which is nothing more than an arrogant heart that's born out of a love for self. That's not the life God has called us to. But that's where the world will go, Paul says to Timothy. Here's another thing. He says they will be revilers. What does that mean? Slanderous is what it means. It means evil speakers. And it's that way because, well, I should say it this way. This is the way to abuse someone, which is also another way to elevate yourself. Because when you love yourself more than others, you have to automatically find ways to put other people down, right? In order to stay on top of the pile, you've got to create a scenario in which everybody else is lower than you. And one of the ways to do that is to speak evil of people, to slander them, to create things that's not true just so that you look better or raise yourself up. And that happens when the heart really believes these things to be true about itself and eventually it's going to come out. That's what Jesus said. What you believe in your heart will eventually come out of your mouth. It may not come out of every conversation, but ultimately it's going to come out in some way. Mark 7, for from within, out of the heart of men, proceed the evil thoughts. I don't have to tell you this, but an example is social media. Social media has a wonderful ability to help a lot of people, and it really does, and I mean that genuinely. But if you pay attention to social media, it is a platform for people to elevate themselves and to tear other people down. So much so that they won't do that in the presence of the person, literally, mostly, some might, but mostly people use it as a way to get their opinion across, to get their point across, to de- devalue the other person so they feel better about their position. Now, I'm not going to talk about the topic of what it is. I'm just simply saying that there are t- many times, if you're paying attention, where people will do that kind of thing. And I believe that's an example of how society will grow according to even what Paul didn't know back in his day because he didn't know anything about social media. I don't think he had a smartphone. Probably not. What do you think? Okay, some of you are awake. All right, good. Here's another thing. This is probably one we're more familiar with. Disobedient to parents. We say, yeah, 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 yeah. As a parent, you know, we all know about how kids can be disobedient. But this really becomes axiomatic. I mean, it becomes obvious when a person loves themselves. Because if a person loves themselves more than they love anyone else, they're going to pass that on to their children. Right? Right? If you grew up in a home where your parents loved themselves, they were put on the throne of their own life, and boy, the kids saw it, right? You've heard the statement before. We've mentioned it before. You can fool anybody as a parent but your own children. They see this kind of thing, and it doesn't take much for the kids to pick pick up on loving themselves either because kids come into the world sinful and selfish. Give me this, give me that, right? We don't have to explain all that. But how many of you, in fact, even now at Christmas, find it, or birthdays, truthful, where you give a gift to one of your children and you didn't make it exactly equal to the other one, and they go, why didn't I get that? How come he or she got that? And I didn't get that. We were just talking with our grandkids about that the other day. Debbie always likes to bring them something when we go to see them. And instead of being excited for the other one, she had to say, hey, why don't you be excited for your sister or for your brother? But that's not the traditional way, right, of the sinful heart. It is, why didn't I get that? Well, parents don't have to teach this much, and that's what I'm simply saying. Paul's point is, when a person is a lover of self, they themselves are not going to be available to their children to really teach the importance of what needs to be done because the children aren't the important one. Who's the important one? The parent, the self. And so the child then becomes more and more disobedient to the parent than really to anybody else. In fact, let's have our teachers stand up and talk about the classroom today and talk about the disobedience there 
Well, we wonder why that's happening. It's because mom and dad at home are loving themselves more than they're loving the child. And we know that because when you love the child, you discipline them, right? That's what the Lord says. He, lo- he disciplines those whom he loves. Well, if I'm a parent that loves myself more than I love my children, I'm not going to discipline them because that hurts me. I can't do that to little Johnny. I can't hurt Sally by not giving her what she wants or somehow going against what she's feeling because that crushes me. Well, who's more, who are you more concerned about? The self. Well, no wonder the little reprobates go out into the world and they just live according to their basal instincts. And that's because of everything that we're talking about here. So, Paul says basically what you have left over then is a self-loving younger soul constantly fighting against the older self-loving parent because self is on the throne instead of Jesus. And it's a spiral effect. Again, you know what the purpose of godly parenting is. I don't have to talk about that. Let's go to the next one. Ungrateful. Again, love of self and they stack. This is the person who loves themselves so much that they don't need to be thankful. You know why? Because in their mind, they deserve it. Well, of course you should give me that. Of course you should do that for me. I don't need to thank you. Why do I need to thank you? I mean, don't you know that I'm the number one person? You should do this for me. Paul goes on to say unholy. And that's not so much talking about irreligious in the sense of what we would think of normally, but really living indecently, and I don't have to talk much about this, the person who lives for self has one purpose, and that is to gratify their own lusts or their own passions with even no thought of a personal reputation. And we're seeing that. The promotion of self to the point where I don't care who sees it. I don't care who knows. Because all I want to do is make sure that I'm happy. And I'll give in to everything. I'll give up all my relationships. I'll do whatever I need to do. And uh, I don't really need to say any more about that. You just watch the world, right? And the people that you know. Unloving, Paul goes on, because this person is so loving of themselves, they have no room for the love of others. Others just become a tool for them, even the people who are closest to them. You may be thinking of situations yourself, people that you were once close to, or at least you thought you were. Maybe they've changed a lot, and now you're not so important to them. They just need you for something in their life instead of just loving you. Well, that's the person who's only interested in what you can do for them. Again, even those people that maybe even in your own family. Irreconcilable. These are people who refuse to change, no matter what the situation is. Those are the people who just are determined to let you know that no matter what the subject is, they're going to be right. And they're not about to back off. They're not going to reconcile with you. They're not going to be the people who are going to say, you know, I should rethink this. You might be right. They're not going to do that. They're so bent on their own self-love that they're not able to do that. They're not going to forgive. They're not going to, again, as I say, back off in any way or even think they need to be forgiven. Why do I need to be forgiven? I'm right. I was right in everything that I do. And even though I think there may be some sense of which I'm not right, I love myself so much I'm not going to give in to this. Paul says there'll be malicious gossips. That word malicious is an interesting adjective. It is a word that is a, a word for diabolical. And that word diabolical is a word that's used to describe Satan many times over in Scripture, meaning these people are so engulfed with their self-love that they do the work of Satan. And one of the ways they do that is they take great pleasure in destroying people's reputation or reputations and even their lives by using the words, their words, evil words, unholy words, ungodly words to take the spotlight off of that person and put it on themselves. That's really what gossip is. Gossip is really just that. It's the, it's the point of taking somebody else and making them look less valuable so that you look more valuable. 
And let me be clear about what gossip is. Sometimes we get confused by that. Gossip is not offering a prayer request or bringing up some concern that you would share with that person. Gossip is when you're bringing up some subject that you wouldn't share with that person, that you're telling somebody else about that you're not willing to go to the person about. That becomes gossip. And the whole purpose of gossip in that evil sense is to make yourself look better by saying, oh, did you hear what so-and-so did? Well, you may not say this this way, but what you're really saying is, I would never do that. Why would I never do that? Because I'm so much better than that person. Why am I better? Because look at me. I love myself. And I would never bring myself down. But look at that person. You see how much better I am than they are? That's gossip. And it's malicious and it's intent. Here's another one. Without self-control, this person is so filled with the love of self, they no longer care what other people think or care about what happens to themselves or others because of what they do. They, they really have no inhibitions. Again, you can just see how this is just getting worse and worse. They have no shame for what they say or do. And as a result, they destroy themselves and others for the sake of their own self-love. It's a very misunderstood kind of thing, even in the person and here's how. There's a good illustration of this. One writer said this. This person is like a driverless car where he careens haphazardly and crashes into whatever gets in his way. The lover of self eventually loses control of his own life and becomes a slave to his passions and ambitions. You see, they're so in love with self that they're like that reckless car out there, but they're in internally really hurting themselves. They're the ones who are putting themselves in the greatest of danger because they don't know what's going to happen out there, but they don't care anymore. They've bought the lie so badly that it doesn't really matter. They will be brutal. This word for brutal in Greek is savagery. That's kind of back to what we were saying earlier in the difficult times. It's kind of the same meaning. But this savagery is like a wild beast. If you picture that, if you've ever watched those old shows or some of the new ones, maybe Animal Planet or whatever it is. We used to watch Mutual of Omaha, right? Wild Kingdom. The guy's watching from the helicopter and there's a, a, a lioness attacking this wildebeest and they're just ripping it to shreds. That's the idea here. The person is such a, on such a downward spiral in their love for self that they become savage towards others. You know, the word here, of course, in English is brutal, especially to those they are to care for. They, they become so full of self-love that it doesn't matter who the other person is. You would think... Why would this person treat me this way of all people? I mean, I am their mother. I am their father. I am their grandparent. I am their aunt, their uncle, their brother or sister. Why would they treat me this way? Well, there is a love for self that becomes savage in its display against others to the point where it doesn't care about who you are as long as I am lifted up and I feel better about myself. Paul says they are haters of good. Again, spiraling down, they have become so self-loving that they hate good and they love evil. Even though they know what should be, they still refuse. Isaiah said it this way, thousands of years, hundreds of years rather, before this would be written by Paul in Isaiah 5, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who substitute darkness for light and light for darkness who substitute bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. When, beloved, in the days of our lives in America, have we seen such a display of good being considered evil and evil being considered good? I mean, when have we seen this? It is just on a rapid decline. But again, it shouldn't be a surprise, which is why Paul's telling Timothy, this is what's going to happen. Be aware. Accept it. We'll get to the instructions next week. But right now, you just need to see this for what it is. Here's another thing. It's going to be treacherous. People will be treacherous. Now, this is also not a word that you would normally think of in the sense of how we look at it in English. We often think of treacherous as a treacherous path or a treacherous cliff. You know, if I go that way, oh, it's going to be treacherous. It's going to be dangerous. Well, that's not really what's being used here in the sense of the word. It really speaks of betrayal. 
It's betrayal, where the person is so in love with self that they will betray even the closest person to them. I cannot allow you to have any regard for me because I love myself so much and because I love myself so much. If it comes down to it, I will betray you for my sake. One of the greatest biblical examples of that is Judas called by the Lord Jesus to be one of his disciples, and in the end, he becomes a traitor. He becomes treacherous, a betrayer of Jesus Christ. Why? Because he loves his own power, his own control, himself more than anything else, even the Lord Christ, the one he's watched for three years. We see that in our day as people claim to be Christians, where people will now condemn those who even taught them the word of the Lord. Condemn Sunday school teachers, condemn pastors, condemn religious leaders who they sat under even in youth ministry. And now instead of listening and listening to the word of the Lord and truth, they now poke fun at the beliefs that were put into their hearts. Why? Because the self has become so much more important. They will do that for whatever reason they feel they need to do it to make sure they stay on top of the scenario and that their heart is entertained if that's what's necessary to live the life that they want to live. They'll bring down the others to elevate themselves. And you can see this in the others. Again, that was Judas because Jesus didn't fulfill what Judas wanted. He left. He left and followed his own self-loving heart probably pointing back to Jesus even figuratively in his mind and saying, I don't need you. You didn't do what I wanted you to do. You weren't the one that I wanted, making Jesus the bad guy. Beloved, we do that in our day-to-day life a lot of times. We go through situations where we don't understand what's happening and who becomes the bad guy. Jesus does. Well, you can fix this. Why don't you fix this? And we make him the bad guy. That's in a very elementary sense, but... Even now, if you watch some reality shows, and I hope you're careful with what you watch, you'll see people who were once a part of the church hearing and learning the things of God, the deep truths of God, and now they've abandoned that out of love for self and they poke fun at the church that taught them how to live rightly. They'll blame the church for their lives so that they can go on and live the life they want to live, even if it means abandoning the God who created them treacherous, hugely evil. Lastly, and we'll go through these fast and we'll be done. The self-lover is reckless, Paul says, meaning they're so preoccupied with self they don't even notice people around them anymore. Conceited, that's an interesting word. You may not have realized this, but at least in the Greek understanding, it's the idea of being enveloped in smoke. They're, They're so clouded by their own inflated, high-minded, prideful mind because they have such a higher view of themselves than they should. Listen, Listen to this now. Lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. As you can understand after hearing everything that you've heard me say this morning, the word pleasure here that's used by Paul is not talking about a godly pleasure like you and I would think of but a selfish pleasure. That should be pretty obvious to us, meaning that this false teacher, if we're using it in that context, like Paul was pointing out to Timothy, or this false convert, loves himself so much that they find pleasure in these other things. It's pleasurable in a sick kind of way to be malicious in their gossip, to be hurtful, to be brutal to others, even spiritually. And that's why those I was just talking about a moment ago that leave the church that they once were taught by will go out and they'll laugh and be joyful about pointing out the negativity of the things of God. It's a horrific thing. If you're looking at that verse carefully, listen, this is what Paul is really saying. Their love for pleasure is not more than the love for God. It's not a balance, imbalance, scale kind of thing, but that they love the self so much that it completely replaces God. God is not even a part of the picture anymore. He has no place in their life. 
which is why Paul concludes with verse 5, and this is where we'll stop. They hold to a form of godliness, although they have denied its power. They hold to a form of godliness, but we could say it this way, but they have denied its power. In other words, they look like the real thing. They look like the real deal, but inwardly they're dead. They're phony. They're fake. They look like, in one sense, the Christian leader that they should be, but yet there's no spirit of God in them. Why? Because they are imposters. They have no living spirit of God in them. In fact, Jude Jude said it this way in verses 12 and 13 of his letter. These are the men who are hidden reefs in your love feasts. You know what a reef is? A reef is that coral that is just below the surface that on the aerial view looks beautiful or from the side of the boat looks beautiful, but it's just there and dangerous enough to really shipwreck the ship. And so Jude picks up on that. They would have understood this. And he says, these self-loving people are like hidden reefs in your love feast. Now, love feast was the communion time, the time where the church would get together and celebrate the resurrection and the body and the blood of Christ. And these people are in there, but you don't notice them. But here's how you notice them. They care for themselves, Jude says. They're like clouds without water. In other words, they look so beautiful, but they don't do any good because there's no nourishment from them. They're carried along by the wind. In other words, wherever the wind blows, that's where they go. Because it doesn't matter. They're just going to light where they want to light. They're like beautiful autumn trees, but with no fruit. And he says they're doubly dead. In other words, they're so dead, not only because, not just because they're sinful from birth, but because they've known the truth, but they've never accepted the truth. They're to be uprooted. They're like wild waves of the sea casting up their own shame like foam, wandering stars. Listen, here's the tragedy of it all. For whom the black darkness has been reserved forever. You know what Judah's saying? He's saying these people who are lovers of themselves are people that God created eternal darkness for from the beginning of time. That's where they will be, eternally separated from you and me. So, beloved, simply all I'm, the point I'm making is, is that the world is screaming around us and sometimes even literally at us, even from within us at times, to compromise the word of the Lord, to give in to ourselves, to do whatever's necessary to make ourselves feel better, Instead of saying, what does the Lord say? Why do they do that? Because, as you've already understood now, there is a self-love that's greater than anything else. And so the only one they want to satisfy is themselves. But the true follower of Christ, the true believer will say, I know that I'm nothing without Jesus. I know I'm nothing. I'm full of sin. I'm full of pride. I love myself. And it's only Jesus and his word who can guide me properly. In other words, let's say it this way. This life is not about me. It's about the Lord himself. That's the true believer. Now, Paul had to say all of that in chapter 3. We're going to go backwards. We're going to pick up his instruction. And we'll do it briefly. We'll do it kind of like today. And I'll point out some things that he says. Now, Timothy, as you understand this, here's who you must be. And so our message to us is going to be as we now go into 2022 and the world is this way around us and even within us at times, we have to be the people that God has called us to be. But we're only going to be that way as we accept the word of the truth, the word of the Lord as truth, the foundation for all things, and we live according to what God has said, not what we feel or think. Amen? And that will get us blessings in the future. Not without pain, not without struggle or suffering, but it will get us blessings. Why? Because God is pleased with his people when they follow his word. All right, well, let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your truth. Lord, uh, I would be the first to admit that I don't want to preach a message like this. I want to hear something good. 
I want to have something sugar-coated and candy-like and flavorful and where I can go out and just skip to the loo of my darling. But Lord, uh, we just understand that the truth is is that we need to hear these things because we are often misguided in our own thinking. We're often misunderstanding ourselves and we often don't understand what we even think or what we even know because we are sinful, which is why we're so thankful that we celebrated what we did yesterday, that you loved us so much that you didn't come to judge us, but you came to set us free from these things. You came to make a way for us to know you and to be right with you, to have a home with you, to live eternally in peace and real joy. And so, Father, we honor you and we thank you. We praise you. We adore you, not because of who we are, but because of who you are. And be pleased with our hearts. Lord, as we go into 2022, and we'll say this again next time, but as we go into 22 and we're making our minds focused that way, we pray that you would guide us every step of the way and not get lost in the discrepancies and distractions of the world and even of our own selfish hearts. But may we just completely and continually surrender to you each and every day as you give them to us. We pray all of this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.